Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. West Coast native Tony Hawk comes to mind when talking about professional skateboarding, the epic tricks he performed during the X Games, and plenty of cameos in movies and TV shows made him a household name. Today, his foundation helps build skate parks in underprivileged areas. Skateboarding culture is thriving on the East Coast, too, and Connecticut notables include street skater and Olympian Alexis Sablone, who was born in Old Saybrook and who medaled seven times in the X Games. Coming up where we live, Sablone joins us, and we learn how she's involved in the opening of a new core skate shop in New Haven this weekend. We also talked to a local skater who organized the first skate park in the Dixwell neighborhood of New Haven. First, what is skateboarding culture, and who does the action sport attract? Sociologist and skateboarding scholar Dr. Neftali Williams says skateboarding is a form of self-expression. He's a University of Southern California provost postdoctoral scholar at the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism and visiting fellow in race, culture, and community at the Yale Schwartzman Center. Dr. Williams, welcome to our show. Ah, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Glad to be with you. Our listeners can join as well, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So I understand you started skateboarding when you were 16. Now you're a skateboarding scholar, and, and you've researched skateboarding in this broader sense as a facet of community building, as I mentioned, self-expression, also perseverance. I also mentioned Tony Hawk. You've worked with the the Skate Park Project, uh, formerly the Tony Hawk Foundation, to work on this first ever study into how young skateboarding and the perception of their communities shapes their development. Tell us about the study, Dr. Williams. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um, One, I really appreciate the fact that the Tony Hawk Foundation slash now the Skate Park Project was having enough insight to think through rather than just having anecdotes from everyone who's been participating in skateboarding for a long time, of course, Tony and and, and other folks, but to reach out to us at the University of Southern California and get us to really work out in the community to gather the experiences of skaters all over the United States so that we could actually, rather than just have anecdotes, but actually have hard data on what their experience has been and how um, skateboarding is viewed within society, within their schools, how their parents approach skateboarding, and really to see how skateboarding affected their career trajectories and their educational goals. So it was a really, it was really groundbreaking to actually get out in the field and make sure that we uncovered how skaters felt and how they felt people um, were treating them. And so as opposed to, as you know, as we get a little older, sometimes we're a little bit removed from the lives of, uh, of young people. So it really was the first of its kind study to give us this hard data to see that these young people were building, um, were building connections intergenerationally, that the skate park was providing them the space to build community and the space to see what they could do in the future uh, through skateboarding and skateboarding culture. Mm. 
I'm curious when you think about how they perceive themselves and how people perceive them as, as skateboarders. You know, what were some of the findings that that surprised you, or um, you know, that felt that that was something that you'd known and now you had the data to show it. So there's two things that I think are important. One, I thought it was great. Um, one of the findings was that most of the skateboarders really liked school. And I think there's been sort of a, a, a stigma within the media saying, you know, always picturing skaters as slackers or, you know, or, or, or not people interested in school. But almost all of the, the we had 5,000 people within the sample and over 100 who we were talking to um, in qualitative interviews. They, they all liked school. They thought school was great. And within that percentage, maybe 70% felt that they weren't judged as harshly um, within their education system, that people were sort of positive towards skateboarding. But there was a good percentage who said, yeah, I don't understand why people think for some reason that because I'm a skater, I'm not interested in school or that somehow I, I don't belong. I don't belong here. So that was one of the things that was really important to, to understand was that they do like school, they feel like they're part of their community, and that skateboarding is part of their identity. But there is a lack of translation between, let's say, us at the university level, we're understanding that there's a natural track for these skaters, right? Normally, you get to participate in football or soccer or other sports. And so that kind of naturally brings you to the university because there's programs in place and scholarships and things like that. And what we realize is there's a big disconnect by not having those same things in place for young skaters because they want to pursue their sport and the thing that they love the most. But they also want to go to school. They also see that and they recognize that, wow, every other sport has space for me to go to school and 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 this doesn't exist for us in skateboarding. So that was one of the findings. And then the second one, the most important for me, um, particularly being from back east, was that skaters of color, particularly African-American males, saw that or felt that when they were traveling through neighborhoods that maybe were not, um, you know, black or brown neighborhoods, they felt that they were judged less harshly um, and seen as less of a threat when they carried their skateboards as opposed to when they were not. Now, for me, that was a huge finding because it allows us to really think through we're concerned with the safety of young black men and women and the concept that they could actually move through space and look look less threatening to people because they're carrying their skateboards. Now, don't get me wrong. They definitely they definitely said people might think of them like, oh, those are skateboarders and they're a nuisance or I don't like skateboarding. But what was central to me is they were still allowed to move through that space. And as we know, sometimes it's very difficult to have black and brown bodies moving through moving through spaces that are not considered their own. So for me, that was a really huge um, it's a huge finding. And that was in The New York Times thinking through how skateboarding can can really help us push towards a sort of anti-racist agenda. So those are two two big findings that I think are important. And then, of course, the things that I always knew was that skateboarding helps build communities regardless of you know, age and uh, social, social uh, economic status. That's something I saw in my time growing up in Massachusetts with skateboarding. And so the study has, has really solidified to folks that it makes sense to build skate parks. It makes sense to, you know, create these pathways between skateboarding and, and academia. And, um, you know, one of the things I've done um, with some friends of mine was a college skateboarding educational foundation to sort of build out just small scholarships for skateboarders for skateboarders, by skateboarders, just to help them see that whether or not they want to be in academia like me or 
they want to go into the arts that, you know, just a little love from the skateboarding community, you know, some small scholarships to go ahead and and let them know that they deserve to be in the university at the same level as everyone else. Mm. I'm talking with Dr. Neftali Williams, a sociologist and skateboarding scholar. He's University of Southern California Provost Postdoctoral Scholar at the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism. And coming up, we're going to learn a little bit more about your work with the Yale Schwartzman Center, uh, Dr. Williams. But when we talk about skateboarding and the culture back east, uh, so where we're mm-hmm. located, I'm wondering if you can tell us more about New England's lesser-known skateboarding legacy. Oh, that's one of my favorite things. I'm glad you asked about that. And just a big shout-out to everyone on the East Coast. Um, One of the ways that I saw that skateboarding really brought brought and built communities was in my own experience. Um, When I was young, I started skating with a group of Black and Latinx um, um, and Asian American, um, and and now in in this space, um, some gender non-binary folks and girls. At the time, those were not things that were happening. There was no, I didn't have an adult model that showed like, hey, all of you kids from all these different backgrounds should be together. But because skateboarding was so new and no one was really in charge of it, there were no coaches for us to learn from, we really just ended up with sort of a more an experiential learning. And we were teaching ourselves the tricks as we learned them. We all just sort of worked on things together. And so in that, I really saw something special. It was like, wow, because we are all being skateboarders and identified as skateboarders then, it's making us want to be together. And what we need in the world is more examples of, of truly, I mean, wanting to be together. Mm-hmm. And I've, I, I've really been... Um, I've really brought that to, to throughout all my work at the Schwarzman Center at USC and all of my work th- throughout the world is looking at skateboarding as a reason for young people to see themselves as one global community, just like I did when I was young. And then to your to your, your point about the Connecticut and uh, the New England scene, mm-hmm. what is great is it's always been spread apart. Like the New England scene is, is from, from Maine to Rhode Island to Connecticut, all the way up to New York. Because we have these harsh winters where when you fall, you feel that all the way through your bones, right? <laughs> you feel you feel that it's it it hurts. And so those are dedicated to being in skateboarding and within skateboarding culture. It it takes, as you said earlier, a little bit of grit and determination to go, okay, it's snowing. I need to find an empty parking lot. Shout out to the to the parking lots that get that gave me my <laughs> gave me my life when I was younger. And uh, you know, hats and mittens and being out in the streets. And so that's something that also bonds sort of all of New England. And Connecticut has been a really big hub with um, New Haven, um, Groton, with skaters coming out like Brian Anderson, of course, Alexis Sablone. But there's a rich, rich history. Uh, Tim Upson, just a lot of skaters, Jim Gagney, who've all come out of who've come out of uh, that sort of New England, that New England scene. You mentioned the parks and lots. And when we think about uh, the city of Hartford and the city of New Haven and their uh, unique skateboarding scenes, but also Ah, can you talk a little bit about the relationship with skaters and the city and even the police? Oh yeah, so so that's great. So and and uh, I know there's there's some some skaters in Hartford and some in New Haven right now. Or like, who, what do you like best? But um, <laughs> I, I I I like both spots. But Hartford ha- Hartford has some great stuff too. And uh, New Haven, we're we're all one big skate family. So everybody's got something to offer. But um, what I think is really important is for people to understand is that when you are out skateboarding, you are exploring and thinking through new ways to engage with the city. 
right? Where people are just using steps or stairs in which to get into a building. You could spend, you know, honestly, you could spend your entire life thinking of combinations of ways to get down those stairs or to skate a handrail or to look at a little ledge or a bench or a little bank that people walk by every day. So that's something that immediately happens with skateboarding is you start to have a new set of eyes and you see the world in a way in which you can have your own expression and your own relationship with the city in a way that's you know that is that's that's moving art and uh, and and really allows you to experiment to the limits of, of of what you're capable of. So the only problem is because skateboarding, um, even though it's an Olympic sport, is it's the only sport that's heavily policed in such a manner. The only activity that does that is you do run the risk of relationship of having early relationships with law enforcement. And this is just a case of saying skateboarding being illegal in a lot of these spaces, other than being in the skate park, does put young people at risk of having these early encounters with police. And I think that that's really important for all adults to think about what does it mean to criminalize your children? Like these are the activities that they do. You should make sure that their first encounters with law enforcement shouldn't be negative ones. And those are things that sit with law enforcement. They don't want to you know, be called out to to stop two skaters that might be skating a ledge that, you know, and it were an empty parking lot. I myself in, in Connecticut or not, excuse me, not in Connecticut, but in Massachusetts had the police called on me for skating an empty parking lot. And so these are the kinds of things, ways in which we criminalize our young people just by not paying enough attention to the fact that they are our young people. The police, that's, that's, that's not something for them. They should actually be seeing as, as, wow, I'm excited that these young people are not just on their phones or that they're playing video games, but they're out exercising and actually working on, you know, tr- truly just working on the relationship with the city. Mm-hmm. Now, don't get me wrong. I want to always say to skaters that make sure you're watching out for pedestrians, but those that's just part of your situational awareness that comes with skateboarding in general in the city. But I want everyone to really think through why are we criminalizing them in the city and um, and how can we improve that? And, um, and Dr. Williams, Williams, to your point, when we think about how skate parks have grown in popularity, where they are actually cited, and again, mm-hmm. the relationship to um, to law enforcement, I wonder if you can talk about that. Yeah, one of the things, um, I, you know, I'm, I'm honored to work as part of the skate park project with Tony Hawk and, and the rest of the foundation. Um, is just that often we see skate park designs where they're specifically placing the skate park right next to the police station. And I don't think that people realize that when you do that, your, your kids are, are, are fully aware of when they're being marginalized. And they see clearly that the soccer field's not next to the police station, the football field or baseball diamond or tennis courts, those are situated often in, 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 um, in nice spaces. But often there's this, there's this um, underlying bias that says, oh, it's the skate park. So let's just put it by the police station because, you know, just in case, you know, they put graffiti on the park or or they get too rowdy. And so these are things and ways in which the kids understand, like, why are you not treating me like everyone else? And they hold that. And if we're going to build a better society where we understand and, you know, truly love and take care of our children, we need to not put them and treat them as, as sort of this criminal element. And I do see that it it often is both a generational thing, but also um, 
an awareness of your relationship to the kids. And I, what I mean by that is sometimes in a lot of affluent neighborhoods, they've already decided like, oh, these are our kids and our kids don't need to be, they're not criminals. I don't care what the stereotypes may be of them. They're not criminals. They're just kids like practicing their sport. So we're going to put the skate park in a nice place. And we see that in some communities that, that they haven't really evolved and they sort of think of the skateboarder as the other, as opposed to their nieces and nephews and and neighbors kids and when they when they do start thinking of them as their children then we hope they evolve away from um, you know always trying to put them in some sort of heavily police space where they have to have you know a million different ways in which to engage with the police for for minor infractions you can join us 888-720-9677 as we talk about skateboarding culture on the East Coast uh, with Dr. Neftali Williams. Again, he's University of Southern California Provost's postdoctoral scholar at the Annenberg School of Communication and Journalism, also visiting fellow in race, culture, and community at Yale Schwartzman Center. Again, we're going to hear more uh, coming up in the show about a local skate park and the work that you've done in the community as well as uh, other uh, local skaters. But I wanted to talk also about your work, uh, you know, thinking about skateboarding as a tool in cultural diplomacy. You're the first ambassador mm-hmm. of skateboarding and envoy for the U.S. Department of State. So tell us briefly about that role and, you know, the work that you've done, even with Syrian refugees. Okay, no problem. So so I, I will say what's been really great is that the, the Department of State has recognized skateboarding as a space that is um, can fulfill a lot of the cultural and um, art and sport diplomacy efforts of the U.S. And so in my role in particular, I worked with um, the Syrian refugees who'd been granted asylum in the Netherlands. And I went and did um, a skateboarding demonstrations um, and, and really brought boards to the kids and actually let them participate in skateboarding hands-on. But I also spoke with the young people who are just regular international students, um, sorry, students students of the International School in the Netherlands. And my conversation with all of them is to let them know that when you start skateboarding, you now join a global community. And that was really important for the for the young Syrians who were in the Netherlands because they've just lost their homes and they're in a new country with a new language. And we're trying to figure out how do we actually, you know, how do we how do we survive in the city? And so for for them, it was really important to let them know as you step on this board, this is your this is your passport to a new community. And it doesn't matter if you're here in the Netherlands, if you're home in Syria or, if, you know, as you know, I work in Cuba or Brazil, um, that that you will have a skateboarding community. Once you start this, you will have a skateboarding community throughout the world. And it wasn't just for them because we got to talk to, again, the young high school students who, you know, the the. Dutch nationals, and they were just as excited because only a few of them skated and having the conversation with them about skateboarding being allowing them to be part of a community around the world. They got so excited. They wanted to skate with all of the uh, the kids who'd been granted asylum. And those are things that don't normally happen in, in that kind of um, in that kind of endeavor. But they wanted to skate with them. The, the, the um, young uh, the asylum seekers had were, were also excited to skate together. And I brought in people from Belgium and some of the surrounding countries um, to help with that, just for everyone to see that as soon as they join, you do have people from coming from across the borders just to welcome you to being part of the skate community. And I've done that and um, use skateboarding as a tool for cultural diplomacy, um, you know, in the Netherlands and Cambodia and Cuba. And one of the things that's important is 
skateboarding works in all of the contexts because it's both individual and you're part of a collectivist group. You add to the fabric of skateboarding, you can still be who you are, but you can you have a crew, you have a you know a global community. And very few sports allow you to be yourself and as an individual be part of the collective in the same way. So it really fits a lot of um, a lot of boxes that that that's that uh, that we all want to happen. And then just lastly, I don't focus on them becoming athletes. Like in in um, when I'm working in Cambodia, it's not about them becoming athletes. It's about them just seeing a way where even if they just like the art on a skateboard, that that might be something to inspire them. Or they see that I'm at the university and they want to think about getting an education or just entrepreneurship and starting their own brands. Just being able to see skateboarding as a tool for them to express themselves or build out to the person that they want to be without having a lot of, um, you know, with a lot of uh, having a lot of constraints on them. Mm -hmm listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public, my guest, sociologist and skateboarding scholar, Dr. Neftali Williams. We're going to hear more about uh, the local skateboarding scene, the culture here, as well as efforts to grow uh, and expand skate parks in our state. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking to skateboarding scholar and sociologist Dr. Neftali Williams about skateboarding culture and the ways this sport is used for self-expression and helping build connections with one another. One of the local skateboarding advocates Dr. Williams has worked with joins us now on Zoom. Steve Roberts leads a local nonprofit that uses skateboarding to build community and helps kids build self-confidence and other skills. Steve is founder and director of the Push to Start Skate program in New Haven that's helping youth in the Dixwell and New Hallville areas. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, Dr. Williams called you a part of the family uh, before we went live, and so you, you, know, you have a relationship uh, with him and, and the, the skateboarding community. So what's, what led you to start Push to Start? Um, so I started Push to Start just because I had some background in the nonprofit industry. My first job um, out of college was as an organizing director, and I kind of got a 
I was burnt out on it. I moved back home in 2016 and I was like, you know, I love organizing. I love kind of the grassroots work of, you know, getting people together. Um, but I was like, I'm going to do it about doing around something I'm passionate about. Um, and that happened to be skateboarding um, because I'd gotten, I'd recently gotten back into skateboarding after playing basketball in college. And the skateboarding community in Providence was really one that kind of wrapped their arms around me and embraced me. And that I grew up in that type of culture in New Haven and me coming back over the summer, there wasn't a skate shop. So there was, there was a void in the skate culture. And I really wanted to get some kids excited about skateboarding and really bring that feel back. Uh, we have a picture, I believe, of you and some of the kids you're working with <laughs> at uh, Where We Live, if you uh, check out uh, Twitter for our listeners. So Push to Start beginning in 2017, and I believe it started behind Stetson Library on Dixwell Avenue. And then because you're of right. safety concerns, you and Jay Joseph co-founded the Scantleberry Park Skate Facility in the Dixwell neighborhood. So tell us about that. So... um Miss Diane Brown, the director of the Stetson Library, was gracious enough uh, to let us use the back parking lot. I would set up some cones um, and let the kids go crazy back there. But we had a few times where cars would, you know, drive through the cones and I'd have to stop the lesson and kind of scold the driver. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I noticed like a lot of the kids became in- dis- discouraged when they couldn't, you know, do an ollie, which is the basic street skateboarding trick. Um, When I started skateboarding, having ramps to skate and, you know, bank surfaces really helped me when I couldn't, when I couldn't ollie. Um, And I just thought it'll make my lessons easier. And it'll also be a cool asset for the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You said the term ollie for people who aren't skaters. Can you describe that for our listeners? Ollie is like the basic jump. If you know uh, what a bunny hop is on a bicycle, mm-hmm. an ollie is the same thing on a skateboard. <laughs> nice. So, what was the, what was the community response? Uh, you know, to moving uh, into Scattleberry Park, and you know, what has been the response since it opened? I believe last year. So, um, Jay and I, Jay and I, put our heads together. We applied to the Could Be Fund, which was a fund um, by the New Haven. Uh, economic collective i believe um we got twenty five thousand, and we had to in order to get the money we had to have a match uh jay and garth ross from the sportsman center had a prior relationship bobby poirier um who co-founded the yale undergrad skateboarding union with jay introduced everyone to each other. And I really want to take time out to give him props because Scandalberry wouldn't be here. Finding a line wouldn't be here um, without Bobby. And also Bobby was very adamant about having folks in the the Yale undergrad skateboarding union come out to push to start lessons and teach. Um, But to continue my original story, we applied for 25,000, got the match from the Schwartzman Center and we got an extra 25000 from the Could Be Fund because someone's, someone else's project required more approval and it, it was a longer process and the money was earmarked to be spent. So we needed the extra money and we got it. So after that, we reached out to the alder of the neighborhood, Alder Jeanette Morrison from Ward 22. 
and she organized two community meetings. Um, and there was there was a lot of tension in those community meetings with Yale's involvement in the project. Um, and Yale also has a hand in how how gentrification has affected New Haven. And people have been fighting Yale on all types of projects um, in the past, over the past, you know, 10, 15 years, because that's when pe- folks have really started to notice the neighborhood change. Um, and we, we really had to convince folks that this project was for the neighborhood. It would be a public park. It's close to a, one of Yale's new dorms, Pauli Murray. So yes, Yale students would benefit, but it's a primarily a city park and something that is there for the residents of the neighborhood and the youth to enjoy. Mm-hmm. And if some Yale students just happen to enjoy it, then, you know, cool. Um, we we had more more protesters at the second meeting, um, but, you know, Jay and I, Alden Morrison, and other folks who were from the neighborhood but knew me and knew me from, you know, skateboarding, um, kind of sways the fears of those who spoke out against it. And it was really a, a loud minority of folks in the neighborhood who, who spoke out against the park. Mm-hmm. Most of the people I had talked to one-on-one um, that didn't come to the meetings were in, were in support of the park. And what is the relationship now? everyone comes up and tells me they love it. Like even, even, you know, the folks that come up that came out and uh, spoke against it, they kind of had their mea culpa moment and uh, they admitted that this is a net benefit for the neighborhood. And they're excited to see kids kind of taking things in their own hands or, you know, just, I don't know, just like using that independence that skateboarding gives, gives people, there's a there's a core group of kids that started skating when the park for, first opened. I call them the Scandal Babies, um, <laughs> and you know it's just crazy to see them evolve over these past two years from you know kind of being shy and timid to really expressive and you know not willing, kind of expressive and willing to you know experiment and take risks, take good risks, um, and just you know grow as a person girls people dr neftali williams is still with us i'm wondering if you mm-hmm. can uh, respond to what steve shared and also your work at the yale schwartzman center you know helping yeah. uh, kids in the city here yeah so one uh, you know just 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 shout out and so much love to steve and jay and and garth at the yale in the yale schwartzman center team um and scandalberry just for for building that new hub because i know as steve was talking about is that there can often be people who are not interested in skateboarding being placed within their community. And a lot of that has to do with um, those media representations of who skateboarders are, right? As I said earlier, if you're not thinking of skateboarding as your children or your neighbor's kids or creating a space for for your young people, you may see it as something that's gentrifying or something that's coming from outside of the community. Um, My my PhD research, um, there's a book, the book that's coming out with uh, UC Berkeley is the history of skaters of color from the 1960s to the present day. So understanding how those experiences um, as being skaters of color have influenced skateboarding as a whole and who were their adversaries and allies just in the same way that Steve is talking about. And I'm excited for that to be out so that people can actually um, 
really be able to see that we've got such a rich history in skateboarding culture. So we should not be looking at it as, oh, they're gentrifying our neighborhood. It's no, this is is our neighborhood and we're taking care of our kids. And that's been a really great, um, I've been having that conversation via the Yale Schwarzman Center with um, Dr. Elijah Anderson, who's a Sterling professor at Yale, who focuses on really race and um, race and how black and brown bodies move through and, and occupy space, particularly with this new book on um, black and white space. Um, and with Elihu Rubin, who is the um, undergraduate director for for um, art and design, and so, oh, excuse me, for architecture and design. And those are the types of conversations that should be had through skateboarding culture. It is both of the city, but actually with, um, from a sociological perspective, how do we empower our young people? And how do we make sure that we recognize them? So I'm really honored to work with both of those, um, you know, great Yale scholars to be through the Schwarzman Center to be bringing this conversation that Steve is having and that Jay is having and actually really show here is the data on skateboarders. Here's the history of skaters of color in particular. And this is a way in which we can take care of our kids. And then last but not least, to this work that Steve and Jay have done, I just got, uh, or I recently returned from a trip trip to Malmo, Sweden. And in Malmo, they've been focused on how do we build a skateboarding friendly city? Now your listeners may be in, why would we want to do that? Well, one, this is a medium-sized city the way that New Haven is, and they are experiencing, you know, the young people moving to bigger cities. They also want to make their young people feel connected to the community, and they want to be thought of as a progressive city. So they actually have, um, you know, a um, a city representative for skateboarding in Malmo who was doing the same thing that Steve is doing. So I, I definitely put forth to the New Haven community that that uh, Steve, Steve and Jay should both be doing that within the city. But they are in charge of not just building separate spaces away from other people for skateboarding, but in seeing what are the skatable spaces that are already there, that skaters have used. There are spots that Steve and Jay can tell you about that are historic skateboarding spots. Why do we necessarily have to spend the money to build new spaces when actually we could just let skaters have, have the spaces for certain times? And that's the thing that we see. Um, I've learned um, in the trips in Malmo, the work I'm doing in New Haven and some of the spaces in LA, there's been a few um, sort of pilots that have done that, but we don't necessarily have to treat them as separate people. It's actually better for our communities to see every age to see like, oh, there's going to be kids who come here who are age 10 at 10 o'clock and there's going to be older groups that come and those shared spaces can be both for pedestrians or dancers or, you know, folks doing capoeira or just just public spaces that should be activated by all the groups that want to. And that's what I've seen that's been really cool about um, what was happening as Malmo is there. They want everyone to feel like they're connected. And I think that that's a lesson that we can learn. And so that's been my my newest research project is to really make it easier for Stephen Jay shouldn't have had to do so much. But I'm, I'm glad to, ha to have a small part in you know actually documenting this history and coming up with it, ways for for the next generation to have a much easier time. And, you know, that's thanks to the Yale Schwarzman Center allowing me to be with the New Haven community and spend time in with the Yale, the, 
the Yale scholars and, and also the work at USC and, and abroad. Mm. Steve Roberts, uh, there's also the Skatable Bowl, so a temporary prefabricated skateboarding park on 25 George Street parking lot uh, that's been there for about 10 months. So when we talk about when we hear Dr. Williams talk about spaces available, can, can you tell us more there? Yeah, so the bowl um, was originally built in D.C. by Ben Ashworth and Dave Mutarelli. Uh, ben Ashworth founding, founded Finding the Line, and Finding the Line. Uh, Finding the Line is a nationwide initiative that engages art institutions and in local communities. Finding the Line collab- cultivates collaborations and develops programming which develops skateboarding culture and uses it to drive um, positive change. So Garth met Ben in DC um, while Garth was working for the Kennedy Center and they put put their heads together and eventually um, an idea got floated of them skating while the the jazz director of the Kennedy Center, Jason Moran and his band, The Bandwagon played um, an improviser set. So from the Kennedy Center, it went to Union Market and they collaborated with Gaudet University to do some robotics um, kind of education over there for their robotics uh, major. Um, five years later, the, the lot got sold uh, to a developer and so the bowl needed a new home. So they had to dismantle the bowl uh, and it sat in pieces at George Mason, where Ben is a sculpture professor. Um, We were fortunate enough that Garth at the Sportsman Center and uh, Lisa Dent, who's the director of Art Space, an arts nonprofit in New Haven, uh, put their heads together, raised some money, and allowed us to bring the bowl from DC up here for the opening of Art Space's Open Source Festival, um, which is kind of like a which is basically like a citywide open studios. Um, they also hired Ben, Dave, uh, our buddy Garai, and a guy, Brian Canavan, who's a photographer, to come up and put the bowl together in about eight days. Um, so we got those four dudes, myself, Jay, some, some local homies volunteered, Um, And we got the bowl together and it really was an amazing time, an amazing, you know, week. Um, Yeah, now the bowl kind of functions as a living art piece. And we've also been able to talk with um, the, the folks who own the building behind the bowl. There was some nasty graffiti that got spray painted on the wall. And I asked the building owner if we could kind of use some use some nice paint and cover it. And they agreed. And I also, you know, pushed the idea of it being kind of a living art wall or a legal wall where if anything got too crazy, we could always cover it with the new color. And they agreed to it. And now, you know, young kids who are in the graffiti, who are in the art, have somewhere to practice um, where they won't get in trouble, where, where they can kind of hone their skills until they're ready to throw something bigger up or more complex up. Um, and it's one of those things where we kind of found our line between the artists and the skateboarders, because those two graffiti artists and skaters kind of think the same way 
about space, about architecture. And now, you know, we have a space where we can all come together and, you know, put our ideas together, improvise, just and be influenced by one another. Mm. Um, and a lot of the skaters in New Haven and, you know, the surrounding areas have been really psyched about it. Which, so I, I want to so thank you um, for explaining that to us, uh, Steve Roberts. And I wanted to get another perspective on on the skateboarding community and how it's growing. On the phone with us is Ethan Giorgetti, who's a skateboarder and videographer from East Hampton, who owns a skateboard company called Social Hour. We played a clip from Giorgetti's latest video titled Keepsake uh, near the end of the last segment. Ethan, welcome to the show. Ethan, can you hear us? Oh, I guess Ethan is not there. So I'm going to go back to Dr. Williams. You know, before we we head into break, uh, when we when we were talking about mm-hmm. the skate scene expanding, I'm hearing the impact of Steve and others, and you know the research that you've done. And I'm just wondering if you can leave us with some last words. I'm just I'm very excited. Um, one of the things, as I was mentioning about you know Malmo making a skate friendly city, the conversation between myself and Malmo was made easier because of the work that was done in the Schwarzman Center to actually build the bowl as the skatable sculpture so that people could re-engage with art and be thinking about where skateboarding should fit in their lives, right? While they're enjoying the city, they should be able to see who else enjoys the city and that sculptures don't necessarily have to just have one function to be looked at and be separated from the people, but they can be used in design so that they're both the art piece, but they can serve a function within the city to provide space and haven and uh, and community gathering space, depending on how they are or are designed. it's really amazing, you know, all the work that's happening in New Haven with Yale and the Yale Schwarzman Center, because having seen Steve and, and Jay and everyone do that work, mm-hmm. it felt that we now had a better connection. Like this is the version of it in the U.S. There's a version of it that's happening in Malmo. There's a version that's happening everywhere. And I think for us as adults, this is also an opportunity for us to think about how our young people can be be. Um, thinking of themselves as a global populace because this event happening, the art week in New Haven is this is similar to what's happening in Brazil, what's happening over overseas in Malmo. And all these young skaters are aware that they're part of a global community. And so those are the things that can keep us bonded together and not create so much separation out in the world if we think of each other as uh, as the, the other as the self, right? Dr. Neftali Williams, a pleasure to hear from you. Thank you for joining us. No problem. Also, Steve Roberts, founder and director of the Push to Start Skate program in New Haven, a nonprofit working with youth in the Dixwell and New Hallville areas. Steve, thank you for your time. Coming out of the break, we're going to be talking to professional skateboarder and Olympian Alexis Sablone, who's partner of a new core skate shop in New Haven. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Skateboarder, professional street skater Alexis Sablone was born in Connecticut. She's medaled seven times in the X Games and was on the first ever skate team during last summer's Olympics. The first time the sport was included in the Games, she's still involved in the skateboarding community 
here, helping to open a new core skate shop in New Haven, the city's first since 2015. Alexis Sablone is the new partner of Plush Soft launching tonight on 96 Orange Street in New Haven. Alexis, welcome to the show. What a pleasure to hear from you. Yeah. Our listeners can join as well. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So tell us about, you know, what inspired you to open up this shop in New Haven? Um, well, I grew up skateboarding here um, with my friend Trevor Thompson. We met skateboarding, I guess, 25 years ago um, at a, another skate shop in Connecticut, and we've been best friends ever since. So, you know, we had we had talked about starting a brand and, and then when the idea of um, starting it as a shop and a brand, um, I don't know, it just really excited us because it felt so full circle, like a way to not just, you know, not just have product, but be a place um, to kind of foster community and like have, you know, skaters from the next generation find lifelong friends and, and have a you know a place to call home. So we're, yeah, we're really excited about it. And um, it feels pretty surreal to be able to do it after all these years. So we were talking earlier about, uh, you know, making space for skaters and you grew up in Connecticut. So how have you seen uh, the skateboarding scene grow uh, in the, on the East coast? I mean, it's, you can't even compare, <laughs> you know, when I started skating in the mid nineties here, um, finding another skateboarder was like, it was like a treasure, you know, it's like you heard stories about skaters from other towns, but that you, you rarely saw them, you know, and, um, and there, it was, they were really far and few between. And now it's obviously skateboarding has kind of exploded into this, mainstream global phenomena and um it's you know it's with that has come a lot of good changes though too with which just seeing kind of more and more types of people skateboarding um all ages um all genders all everything um and i think that that has really is continuing to it's continuing to grow and that's continuing to be, you know, skateboarding has always been skateboarders will say skateboarding's for everybody. And, um, I think now more and more that's becoming true. And it's really cool to see after, you know, being a part of it for so many years. Um, so yeah. And you're an Olympian, uh, again, competing last summer, the first time the sport was included in the games. How did that feel, Alexis? Um, it felt, I mean, it was a huge honor. It felt kind of um, unexpected. I guess it's, it's like so many of the so many sports that are in the Olympics. It's probably you know people train with that as like this ultimate goal in mind. And for skateboarding, for me, you know, that was never the goal. Um, skateboarding wasn't part of the Olympics. That wasn't even a possibility or a thought in my mind. Um, but you know, I in competitions for years to to make a living and um and that put me in a position to be able to actually make it there and um once I was in that position I was you know I just felt kind of like just grateful to 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 be there you know and to get to experience that because it's just 
um, not an experience that many people get to have. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. It was uh, pretty incredible, and still it feels <laughs> surreal, like mm. hard, you know. Um, but, yeah. So I mentioned uh, Plush again. This is soft launching tonight uh, on Orange mm-hmm. Street in New Haven. This is the first core skateboard shop in New Haven since 2015. So what can listeners expect when they visit? Um, well, I mean, we've been working very hard. <laughs> I'm it's sitting in the shop now c- covered in... Uh, covered in mortar dust um we're still cleaning up and getting everything set up and you know we um i got to design it we built it ourselves and like we've already just kind of the friends like that we've already had that came out to help work on it and the new friends we've made um like of all generations kind of it's been really cool like it already feels like something that is so close to us, you know, because it brought us together working on it. And, um, but I think that, I don't know, we just kind of set out to make the shop we always wished we'd had here. Um, and it's kind of a dream come true for, for us to be able to do it and to be in a position to be able to do it. And so, yeah, we just really put, put everything into it. So, um, I don't know where I think it's, um, you know, unique and hopefully will be beloved to skaters and generations to come. So, yeah. When you talk about helping design it, for listeners who don't know, you have a master's degree in architecture. You've uh, designed really impressive skatable sculptures around the world. Uh, so it's interesting to, to hear about that other talent that you have, Alexis. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is my first time designing a, a retail space, but it's it's cool that it still surprises me all of the the different the way that kind of skateboarding and all of um the other work that I do continues to like overlap and skateboarding continues to surprise me and open up um new doors for me so yeah it was really um really rewarding to be able to you know get to design it and and then actually like build it and see it come to life and and to have like I said help from from friends working on things with us late nights and stuff is um I think a lot of exhausting nights but I think a lot of uh memories will will cherish forever so yeah pretty cool I've been talking to professional skater and Olympian Alexis Sablone, a Connecticut native, a new partner of Plush, a core skate shop, a soft launch happening tonight at 96 Orange Street in New Haven. Alexis, a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Great to be here. All right. Thank you. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical director is Kat Pastor. Coming up Tuesday after Labor Day, a sit-down conversation with gubernatorial Republican nominee Bob Stefanowski. We hope you can join us.